All right, so you're all being recorded now, so <laughs> watch what you say. All right, so um, we're going to be looking at, uh, at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 here. Um, and I've got some stuff I'm going to share with you here, a handout, just a minute, but uh, I'm going to kind of get our, get our thoughts started by way of just trying to think about... Um, We'll, we'll read the story in a minute, but even before we do, I want to kind of share a, a, a separate story that will help us to kind of start thinking in the, in the same channels of themes that arise in the story we're going to be talking about from Scripture today. So this is going to be more like a, a story from our um, contemporary lives today, um, or, you know, in, in this generation, and I, I hope that you won't just think about the details of this specific illustration, but even start to make connections um, to things you think about in your own life that will parallel this. So um, two weeks ago, I was listening to a talk that was put on by a, a mission organization. And one of the pastors who was on this panel, he was describing how... Um, when it comes to barriers to people going to do ministry in overseas contexts, one of the biggest challenges, especially for going to difficult places, to reach the hardest people to reach, one of the most significant barriers to that are the parents of those who would go. Because they don't want their children to be so far away from them and to be put in harm's way. And maybe more than their children, they have those concerns for those grandkids, right? Um, I always tease when we were in China, I teased my in-laws that they weren't really coming to see me or, or Kristen. They were just here for the grandkids. Um, and uh, it was a joke, but there was a measure of truth to it as well. Um, and it was a significant thing that they were giving up, my, my in-laws and, and my parents, by, by missing those seven years of precious years of our children growing up, right? And so that's, that's a common thing. And as soon as I heard that pastor say that, I was just moved in my heart to text a friend of mine. Her name is April, who her son and her two precious granddaughters and her, her daughter-in-law are currently in Vietnam uh, making an attempt to move toward an unreached people group there. And just to encourage her to tell her I'm praying for the Lord to strengthen her in, in, in the pain and loss that she's going through as they do that. But as I, was, as I was thinking about her story, I started to think about how, um, how some, some ways in the past in my life, um, there was an intersection of the themes of the passes we're going to look at and, and her story. Um, about, I think April is... I don't know, I'm, I'm terrible at guessing people's age. You know, she's probably in her mid-50s, 60s somewhere. Um, about 15 years ago or so, uh, it, her husband revealed that he had been unfaithful to her. And the pastors at our former church sat with her through that loss and that pain. Uh, and eventually, um, he was disciplined from the church because he was unrepentant and unwilling to, um, I mean, he's really walked away from God. And I remember being one of those people who was sitting with April in that time of just 
unfathomable pain. And uh, two things going through my mind. Um, one of them being, well, really kind of parallel. I'm sure, I'm sure that I prayed for her. I'm sure I prayed with her. But I remember having no idea how to help. Um, I am 42. 15 years ago, I was pretty young. I had no idea what I was doing trying to help her. And I remember thinking that I needed to do something. I remember thinking that, I mean, that was the, the focus of my heart and mind, was what can I do to help? Um, and, and that kind of dynamic, um, that kind of scenario, I think is exactly what we see playing out in a different story and different circumstances uh, in the passage we're going to look at here together. So you have somebody who is desperate in pain and loss and suffering, who's hurting, and then you have somebody trying to help them. And they don't know what to do, but their focus is, what can I do? So let's, with that kind of thing in mind, this morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Um, so I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to kind of take more of an a inductive Bible study approach today. If you know what that, the word inductive is a little distant from us, but it's just going to, we're going to dig in together. And as a team, we're going to look at this passage. Um, so uh, it'll be a little bit of a different approach today, but I, I trust that it will help us drive at the central theme that this text is getting at for our good for our growth and encouragement. So let's read Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29. Uh, just, just remember, last week Nathan was teaching uh, about the passage where they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been with the Lord in this incredible experience, right? They saw the glory of God and they heard Trinitarian conversation. As God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? Okay, so that's the experience they've just had. Um, you know, Nathan emphasized the, the kingdom aspects of what was being displayed there. And now we hear this, these words in verse 14. And, and when they came to the disciples, so what, what does that mean? They came, the, the three with Jesus come down from the mountain and they come to the other nine, Right? They're reuniting with the other disciples. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So he asked this question presumably to the scribes or to the disciples, right? Because it sounds like the arguments between the scribes and the disciples. But look at verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him. Doesn't even have a name. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked, his, so I asked his, your disciples, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed in the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it often, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray together. God, we need your help. Uh, we are um, we're coming to this passage with uh, experiences that have in many ways often made our hearts cold to faith in you. Uh, there, are, uh, there are ways that cynicism and doubt have crept into our hearts, uh, like this father who for so long has suffered in this state. And uh, we need your spirit to do work to, to build again our faith. Uh, Lord, we have pursued to do work in your name without calling on your name. And like the disciples, Lord, we need to be reminded of our complete dependence on you. Help us, Lord, to grow in, in these things as we study this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to confess that my meditations on this passage have been um, scattered. And when I say that, I mean they've been, uh, as I'm driving, in the middle of my work day, um, just all over the place. And so right now on my desk, I have about 10 different scraps of paper with scratched notes everywhere. So that's not usually the best way to prepare to do teaching, right? It's hard to bring it all together. Lord willing, um, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Um, Lord willing, we'll be able to bring all these thoughts together. Um, not only that, but this passage actually does something that most passages doesn't. Most texts of scripture, uh, teachers of how to teach the Bible tell you, that you should have one theme to the passage you teach. You should focus on that one theme. But this passage, I am convinced, actually has two central questions to it and two answers to it. They're related, but they are, they are separate. And as a result, it's a little bit challenging to organize our thoughts. So I'm convinced, as I've meditated on this passage, that this, this passage is asking two questions. The first question I think it's asking is, what do desperate, doubting sufferers need? We're talking about the father here, right? The father of this boy. What do desperate, doubting sufferers need? 
I think that's the first question it asks and answers. I think the second question that is in this text is how, or, or, or actually more like why, are we sometimes unable to help them? So it's kind of moving in those two different directions. You see how there's kind of two audiences in this text. On the one hand, Jesus is speaking to the Father himself and administering to him. But on the other hand, Jesus is also speaking to his disciples. And the answer to those two different questions is different. So it's hard to bring those two together. But the answer he gives has very similar language, right? On the one hand, Jesus tells them, well, I'm not going to give you the answer yet. So those are the two questions. The first question is, what do doubting, struggling sufferers need? Desperate sufferers need. What, what do they need? The second question is, why are we sometimes unable to help them? That makes sense? You, you, you with me there? Okay. So with those two questions in mind, our approach today is going to be to start with some interactive Bible study. So as I've studied the text I've really found it helpful to kind of list out the problems in the story and the solutions in the story. So in order to aid that process, um, I've got a handout. And you're going to see the handout has, on one side it has blanks with columns, you know, problem and solution, right? And the text in the middle. On the other side, you'll find the answers, okay? Start with this side, all right? And the other side is for your reference. In case when you, you know, when we go through this, you're like, wait, what was that? Or you can't read my writing on the board. Um, hopefully, this will help. Cheat sheet. It's the cheat sheet. But don't cheat. Too early. You don't have enough. Thank you. Okay, so um, we're going to do this activity together. So what I'd like you to do is... You know, starting from the top, let's just start with the first verses. Um, help me, what do, what do you see in this passage that would be uh, a problem? Um, let me, well, I'll, we'll get there as we go. So what would you see as, what's the first problem you see in the passage? Arguing. There's a, there's a conflict. There's an argument, right? So we have this argument. Can you tell me more about it, Tom? Um. Like, who are the actors? Who are the players in the argument? So the, 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 the disciples. Or, well, it's just a crowd. There's a crowd. The disciples are arguing. Um, and it says the scribes are arguing with them. But there's not a lot of clear detail about the nature of that argument, right? So um, we know about the scribes in the past that they... Already, they, they've already committed to trying to destroy Jesus. Mark has already told us that, right? We know throughout Mark's gospel, the crowds are not like all these fans that people love and want today. 
In, in our celebrity culture in America, Jesus doesn't want these fans and these crowds. They're, they're a hindrance, they're a barrier, not a help. They bring confusion and hysteria. Okay, so, so there's that kind of mob kind of moment happening here. But even as we read further, you know, who is it that speaks up from the crowd when Jesus asks, hey, what's, what's this argument about? The scribes don't speak up, the disciples don't speak up, it's this man who's, who's nameless, you know, who has this son who is causing, you know, who, who's at the center of all this conflict. So that's the, the first problem that we find. I, I want to come back to I, some ideas about what that argument could have been about. But of course, the text doesn't directly tell us. So Jesus asks the question that every parent dreads to ask in the midst of a fight. What are you arguing about? <laughs> I don't even want to know. <laughs> okay, um, so next problem. I'm going to call this problem 2A, as you'll see on your sheet there. I'm calling it 2A because I think it gets repeated in other places, descriptions of kind of the same problem. But what, what do you see as the, the next problem in the passage that comes up? father needs help with his son. Yeah. I mean, obviously. The, the obvious problem in this passage is there's a boy who's possessed by a demon. And it's doing all kinds of terrible things to him. Endangering his life. So, um, I'm just going to say the boy's condition here. But, you know, if you look at the cheat sheet, maybe it's got a little bit more than that. So, initially in verses 17 and 18, how... Is the problem described? Um, why don't you go ahead and fill that in for us, Becky, since you got us started. Okay. That, that he has a spirit that makes him mute. Okay. So there's, he's unable to speak because of a spirit. Later, the spirit is referred to as an unclean spirit. What else does it say about him? Or about the boy's problem? He's having seizures. So there's this kind of spiritual and physical tied together happening here, right? We have some of the symptoms of, of an epileptic seizure, but it's being driven by spiritual causes, which we should not start to draw conclusions about those things, but we should recognize they can be interrelated with one another. You understand what I mean about drawing conclusions. We can't assume that if we see symptoms of a physical problem, that it inherently means there's a spiritual problem. But in the other way, we shouldn't just ignore the possibility of the spiritual as well. Okay, just a general caution there. Um, okay, so we have this brokenhearted father with a son tormented by a demon who's putting him in, in this, kind of, this kind of condition. So we've marked it as 2A because we're going to see more description of the same problem as we continue on in the passage. But let's continue to identify the next problem we encounter in the text, just as the story unfolds. The disciples couldn't cast it out. They are unable. They could not, right? There's a strong emphasis in this whole passage on ability. Can you do something? Can you not do something? They were unable to cast out the, the demon. So three uh, disciples unable. 
All right. The disciples' inability to face a demon in Jesus' absence. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to remember what's going on here. And it actually helps us connect with the reality that we are in some ways living currently in Jesus' physical absence. Though we, though we know his, phys- his spiritual presence, um, the, the disciples were not ready for that yet at this point. These nine disciples were not ready for Jesus' absence. So, so he brought his son to the disciples, asking them to cast out this evil spirit, but they were unable to. Remember, we're not told what the argument is about. Um, and it certainly could be that the scribes, because it says the scribes are arguing with them. It could be the scribes were like, hey, this is an unauthorized exorcism. And they're you know, arguing about it on that level. That's possibly what the argument was about. But I also think that it could be that this broken father who wanted answers from the disciples, he brought his son to be rescued, but what, what kind of cool joke would it be for them to pretend that they had power to do something to help and then disappoint him? I think we can all identify with the cynicism that builds up in our hearts when our expectations for help are not realized. So one way or another, this man is right in the middle of this argument. And the disciples' inability to face this demon is a big part of that. So already here, you see how we've encountered our two main questions in our passage? We've already encountered them. What do desperate, doubting sufferers need? Here he is. What does he need? And then, why are we unable to help them sometimes? The disciples were unable to help in this case. We're still waiting to hear any answers to those questions or those problems. Let's keep going, though, identifying the problems in this passage. Okay? Problem number four. What do you see? Problem number four. Without faith. They're without faith. You're, what, are you, what verse are you talking about in particular? Uh, I think it was 18. Or 19. Yeah, 19. What does Jesus, like... Think about how interesting this is, okay? So Jesus calls for the boy. He says, bring him to me. And so they bring him, and right there before Jesus, the spirit, you know, acts up again. And the boy has this this demonic seizure right in front of Jesus. So what does Jesus... I'm sorry. Um... I, I skipped ahead. I was, no, I got the, I got the order of events wrong. Um, not yet, not yet. Um, so... Uh, so after he hears, what does Jesus do as soon as he hears that his disciples are unable to cast out the demon? He's frustrated. He's frustrated. The Son of God is frustrated. <laughs> frustrated is a, it, it's a tough word theologically to use about Jesus, right? Um, but there is something to what you're saying. He says, oh, faithless generation. It's kind of a strange thing to say in this moment, isn't it? Like, who is he talking to? Everyone. Good answer. Very, very good answer. You all, y'all don't get, and and actually, it's like generationally, like like we attack the millennials, right? Like Jesus is getting on a specific generation. So it can't just be the disciples or the crowds. It's everybody here is missing it, right? Good, Tim. Thank you for that. So we have number four, a 
a generation of faithful faithlessness. Generation of faithlessness. Now, um, after that, and, and what Jesus says here in this moment is fascinating. He says, how, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Which drives at that kind of frustration point. But shouldn't we be concerned about this question? What is it that frustrates Jesus most? In, in, this, in this story, what is it that bothers Jesus most? You, you just heard the answer given by, by two sisters here in the room, right? He is most animated, most concerned, most burdened, and weighed down by this lack of faith. He's really identifying, I think, the heart of the problem in this story in both of the questions. The question about the desperate father and the question about how we're sometimes unable to help people who are suffering. In both cases, he's addressing faithlessness as getting to the root of things. Jesus was burdened by a generation's failure to trust in God. That constant drip, drip, drip of unbelief all around Jesus was what bothered him most here in this moment. All right, let's keep going with the problem. We got we to gotta speed ourselves along the way here. Um, what do we see next after verse 19 as far as the problem? There's a little bit of a hint here. I'm calling it 2B. So we're regressing back, right? In verse 20, I'll just kind of fill this one in for a second. In verse 20, now the father um, or the demon now, like I was trying to say before, the demon causes the boy to have a seizure right there. So it's kind of a, a, re, um, a, a return to this, this here, right? So the boy has a seizure. Right? To be. Okay. Now, what happens next? So the boy falls on the ground, and, and here we... We see Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus on the problem first, and then we'll come back to the solution. So we're just going to keep on rooting out the problem. So Jesus asks a question in verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. So I'm going to add this in as to see, to identify just a further statement of how bad this problem is. That since he was a child... Um, Let's just say harm since he was since he was little. You have a better statement of that in the notes. Um, so when we get to this point, three times I'm going to make this these two, these three of them tie together, right? Three times we have a statement of the man's condition and the boy's condition combined together. Um, Matthew and Luke. Both tell this story, but they give about half the time to the story that Mark does. That's pretty remarkable for Mark, right? Mark's the shortest gospel. He's boom, 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 boom. He doesn't give a lot of details, but he slows down here because he's making a point about what it means to follow Jesus that is really important, and he wants us to see it from this story. All right. Um, so there's 
there's the completion of the boy's condition and the father's situation uh, here in, in the story. Uh, just, just pause for a minute. Since Mark makes us pause here, we should pause as well. We should be identifying with this father's grief and, and thinking about it with empathy. Um, I mean, just, just imagine this father's situation. Um, I feel like this illustration could trivialize his situation, but it's one way I can connect with it. We have a beloved miniature poodle in our home. And occasionally, he does some seizure-like things. And it scares me. It deeply scares me. And he's a dog, right? So make the connection to your child. And, and now, you know, it's easy to quickly start to tear up. Um, think about how this father has been in nearly constant fear that whatever was happening inside his son would eventually work its way out to his destruction. And living with that kind of constant fear. Man, uh, parents living in America today seem to live in a lot of fear. But nowhere does it compare to what this man was facing. He undoubtedly exhausted his resources trying to gain medical help. He knew better than any of us what sleepless nights were like. And many of us do know what sleepless nights are like. I, I would expect that he and his wife suffered financial loss as someone who all, someone always had to be assigned to this kid's care. Like they, they, they couldn't both work, right? There were a lot of limits to their lives as a result of this. The desperate, doubting, suffering condition of this father is something that should weigh on us as we go through this story. All right, so we've, we've made it now to verse 22-ish. Let's keep identifying the problems, though, because now we start to see a little bit of a, a stronger shift in the problems in the passage that drive us even more to some of the themes. What else do you see on the problem side? Cast them into the fire and water, which is pretty serious stuff. Yes, and I'm kind of summarizing all of that as harming him since he was little. Right? Since he was a child, that could be one level of it, and then add to it harming him and throwing him into fire and water. Absolutely. So that's the condition of the boy is central in the problems in this passage. Well, yeah. Yep. Definitely. And, and, and please understand, uh, I've listed the problems I see, and there's more here that we could all see. So. He's not sure that Jesus can even do it, if you can. Okay, good. Yeah. Number five, we have here, um, we have his own, you said he's not sure Jesus can even do it. Right. And there's definitely doubt that is expressed here. And he says, if you can, and sometimes we use language inaccurately, and maybe he was just, you know, not being careful with his words. But what does Jesus say? He says, he doesn't even say, if I can. He quotes him, right? Jesus quotes the man back to him, which what does that mean? He's like, indeed, if you can, right? That's what Jesus is saying here in this moment. So number five, you have uh, the man's doubts. 
um, or his unsureness, like he said. So this is clearly driving at the, the faithless theme that Jesus has identified, you, you faithless generation, right? But I don't think Jesus is primarily just targeting this man when he says that. It's not just at, at this guy, right? Okay, so there is uh, the, the, the father's cynicism. I mean, think about it um, in, this, in this context. What, what do you think Jesus really identifies as the biggest problem here? On the one hand, Mark gives us the weight of this man's and his son's physical condition, spiritual condition. But when Jesus speaks to the problem, he starts addressing this, this faith issue. The spiritual condition of the scribes, the crowds, the disciples, and this man is what Jesus is prioritizing. Certainly, he demonstrates a kind of tenderness and care for the boy and the father. But I think the overall point of this passage isn't actually just about the boy or about the scribes or the crowds or the disciples or the father. It's it's about faithlessness. It's about unbelief. That might be a better word to use than faithlessness. That one's a little tougher to unpack. All right, so problem again, the man's doubt or unbelief. Um, Let's keep moving, and I think the next couple of of problems we can address a little bit more quickly. Um, Looking at verse 25, there's a problem that arises, and it's an interesting problem. Jesus sees the crowd gathering, so what does he do? He's like, hey, let's find a prominent place for me to stand on a platform so I can show everybody this miracle. No, he speeds up the miracle so less people see it. (laughs) Um, So there's another problem. Uh, Number six, the crowds. There they are again. Uh, I'm just going to say crowds. And then uh, number seven, what's what's the last problem related to the boy, at least, in verse 26? He looked dead. He looked dead. I'm just going to say, is he dead? Like, the way that it's described in the passage is people really thought... Like, it wasn't just a moment he laid on the ground. They, they, they really thought, this boy didn't survive this encounter with this demon. Jesus may have gotten rid of the demon, but he, the, the, the kid may not have survived it. And it really gives that, that feeling, that weight, as, as, as people experienced it. So there's, uh, there's another problem. And then, jumping to the very end, verses 28 and 29, we got one more problem to deal with, which is actually... Tied back to 3A. I should have put an A here. Right? What's the problem in verse 28 and 29? It's so obvious you can see it, you don't want to say it. Right? Nobody wants to give the obvious answer. I'll give the obvious answer. Why can't, why can't we do this? Thank you. Um, why were we unable to cast this demon out? So it's really a restatement of that first problem with the disciples all the way back up in 3A. Okay, so we've, we've really spent a lot of time on the problem. We need to spend more time on the solution, maybe a little more time than we even have this morning. So let's come back to the other side. I'm just going to pull this a little closer to me. You know what? I'm not going to write them up there. That's taking too much time. You have them in front of you. Um, so let's look at the solutions that start to come as we go here. I'm going to start the solutions out, but I want you to be looking at the text to think about where we start to see solution to the problems happening. 
I'm going to start in a place you wouldn't expect. I think in verse 19, when Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation, we have an identification of the problem. And that is always the first step in solving problems. Lately in my job, I've been invited to be part of the help desk support team. People have have issues with the software they've purchased from us, and they call in and ask for help. And every time they do that, they tell us what the problem is that they're having. But they usually don't know what the problem really is. They might be using it wrong, right? They don't understand what they're doing themselves. So we have to get more context to understand what's really happening here so we can really name what the problem is. I mean, what would we all have said with just reading the passage at a glance? What would we have all been tempted to say right from the beginning if I just said, what's the problem in this passage? The boy's condition. There's a demon. It's a physical, spiritual problem there. But we wouldn't have said it's a spiritual faith problem as quickly. Now, we're smart people. We would have gotten there eventually. We actually did, didn't we? Right? But Jesus cuts to that for us. And I think that's a big part of of where the solution starts to come from. Uh, Imagine what would have happened if Jesus just stepped in and cast out the demon. What would he have lost? What would the father have lost? What would the boy have lost? What would the disciples have lost if Jesus just stepped in and solved the initial problem that we all saw so easily? They would have addressed the real problem, which was lack of faith. Yeah, yeah. And I hope that the application to that question is transparent to you, as it is to me. Um, I want him to step in and deal with the problems that I see very evidently in my life right now. Um, Take it away. Don't take me through it. Take it away. Mm -hmm. And um, if that's what we want from Jesus, if that's all we want him to do to solve the problem that we feel, then we'll never have the, the opportunity for him to cut to the heart of things like he does here. So first solution A, Jesus identifies the problem of faithlessness or of unbelief. Might be a better way to say it. Uh, Second solution that we start to see develop here is just simply in verse 21. Notice what Jesus does. He asks a question to the Father. He says, how long has this been happening? And, And you can sense the compassion that Jesus is displaying toward this man as he just engages in understanding the understanding, like as if Jesus needed to understand and ask this question. So he asks him how long this is happening. So Jesus shows compassion to the father, again, moving toward the solution. But as he shows compassion, he also, letter C, corrects the father's doubts and teaches about the power of faith. And maybe this could be broken into two separate points, but they go very much together, right? We already identified what Jesus says to him. He says, if you can, if you can, and then he tells him that, he tells them that all things are possible for those who believe. And I think this is really where we encounter the first answer to the question that we asked first. What do desperate sufferers need who are struggling with doubt? They They need to believe that with Jesus, all things are possible. That's what Jesus is telling them they need. All things are possible 
to the one who believes. That's a central idea in this passage. It's a central teaching of Jesus. It's a proverb that Jesus basically just lays out there for us. All things are possible to those who believe. Of course, we can't abuse that statement, right? Jesus' intent here is not to make it some kind of Polar Express concept. You know, the song on Polar Express about belief. You know, if you, if you just believe in Christmas, then your Christmas will be happy or something, right? Um, that's not the con- kind of concept of faith that is being expressed here. Believe in, in what or whom is the central question, right? If you can, so when he says all things are possible to the one who believes, he's talking about the one who believes in, in him, in himself. So the object of faith is crucial here. So he corrects the father's doubts and he teaches the power of faith. And then I think a key part of the solution in this, in this scenario also comes, certainly the heart of the solution is with God, it's with Jesus, but there is a part of the solution that is the man's responsibility to respond in faith, right? And notice how he does respond. I think one of the richest truths of this passage surfaces as we see that the very humility of this father in his desperation, was the thing that made him more spiritually qualified and praiseworthy than any of the other characters in the story. From a human standpoint, who's most uh, exemplary in this story? The disciples? The crowds? The scribes? It's this man in his desperation. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, This, I think, may be the most beautiful expression of faith in all of Scripture. One commentator says this. He says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. And yet that is not, I'm stepping away from what the author said, that is not unbelief. Knowing in our humility that our faith is insufficient, insignificant, is not unbelief, friend. How many times have we felt like, I guess I just don't have faith? Because we feel the the smallness of our faith. And one of the lessons of this story is that is not true. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient amount of faith, but when he risks risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. And so we're invited to pray this prayer that he prays all of the time. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think, I think maybe second to the Lord's Prayer, this should be our favorite prayer. Um, continuing with the solution, then, we see that Jesus commands the demon to leave, and he doesn't just say now, but he says forever. Never return again, in verse 25. And then there was this problem of maybe the boy is dead. And Jesus raises him. Does he raise him from the dead? It doesn't seem like it, because the text, I think, would tell us directly if he did. But it seems like he almost even raised him from the dead, which happens to be a main theme Mark has been talking about. Jesus himself dying and being raised from the dead. We don't have time to emphasize that topic more. But then we come to the end of the passage where we get this last application, this last solution, and that is Jesus teaches us that certain spiritual work 
can only succeed through prayer. So that's our second question. Why are we sometimes unable to help, right? Jesus answers the question. He's like, well, because you forgot to pray. So when he says this, he says certain kinds of demons can only be cast out successfully through prayer. Sounds a little strange to us. I mean, exorcism sounds strange to us, living in the, with the worldview of the West that we have that never sees spiritual causes behind anything, it seems, right? But it also seems strange to us because he's like, is he saying there's different rankings to these spiritual encounters? And I think he kind of is. But I don't think he's saying that we ever should go into any kind of spiritual encounter without prayer. But he's saying there's certain times where you're never going to get anywhere without it. So Jesus' response here, he, he's telling us all things are possible for the one who believes to the, to the Father. And then now he tells his disciples certain things are impossible without prayer. So we could summarize the message of this passage with this statement. Well, nothing is impossible with faith, certain things are impossible without prayer. The disciples had entered into this moment like we often do, running to try and address a problem, running to try and do something. I need to do something to help. And we do that prayerlessly. And so we fall into the same statement that Jesus made to the whole generation. Oh, faithless generation. No, we need to turn in dependence to him. So you have two kinds of unbelief happening here. You have the unbelief of the man who doubts Jesus' capacity and his compassion to help. And then you have the unbelief of the disciples who think that they can do things on their own. And Jesus addresses both of those with this challenge of this, this statement, certain things are impossible without prayer. All things are possible for the one who believes. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this text and for the way uh, that it confronts our struggle to trust in you. And I pray that you would help us in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.